0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, 8.04 Apple time. Uh, Thank you for joining us uh, now entirely on the cloud. Uh, Welcome to a an academic uh, exercise, which is, uh, I think, a welcome respite from all the news that you are receiving uh, uh, on a 24 hour time period. Um, uh, Again, I want to uh, uh, make sure that I convey a message that uh, I want all of you to be safe. Uh, I also want to tell you to be not afraid. Be careful uh, with the things that you do, but be not afraid. Uh, we have a, a great responsibility as healthcare providers for all the children that we're taking care of uh, to keep them safe and to keep ourselves safe. And if you follow the healthcare uh, uh, authorities' recommendations in terms of proper distancing, uh, hand washing, sanitizer, um, and proper PPE in the cases you need to use them, uh, you, you will be fine. Um, As you know, the uh, uh, pandemic continues to uh, increase in number and size, uh, and here at Connecticut Children's Medical Center, we are prepared. Uh, We we have been working very hard for the last uh, month to make sure that uh, that we're prepared in a a variety of settings. One, we want to make sure that if a child does come into the emergency department that we're able to properly uh, uh, protect the child, protect our staff, get the testing done. Uh, We've had uh, several instances now, approximately uh, uh, eight times that we've uh, enacted the the process and and we do have uh, six children in the house right now that are getting uh, uh, testing and hopefully we'll be able to rule them out uh, this this afternoon with our testing uh, for COVID-19. We're also preparing our ICU to make sure that they have uh, the proper setting to take care of the patients and the inpatient units. Uh, in, in addition, we're working with with you, our primary care pediatricians, uh, to make sure you have proper guidance from us uh, in terms of how to handle a patient that may come in. Uh, and now there are several things that have changed over the last uh, 24 hours, uh, where we um, at Connecticut Children's have uh, made a decision to postpone all elective surgeries uh, that, that can be postponed. Obviously those that are emergent or urgent or procedures Uh, They they will still be done because we need to provide the care for our patients that needs to be provided. Uh, In addition, uh, we are uh, changing our clinic schedule in in, uh, to to make sure that we uh, provide uh, ample space for patients and families and for our staff. Uh, So we'll be limiting those clinic visits uh, exclusively for those patients that require that urgent visit. Uh, We're working on the protocols right now. We'll begin with that tomorrow, and we're working with the division chiefs and the providers who are experts in their area to Mm -hmm. define who should be uh, protected uh, and, and who should be rescheduled? Uh, of course, this will create a, a lot of anxiety with parents that, that need to come in. Uh, uh, but we are working on a, an hour-by-hour basis, and uh, as information changes, this may this may change. Um, one of the things I want to say is that we are probably going to. Uh, we're still in the, in the working with with our uh, academic affairs office uh, that we will be changing uh, this venue, uh, which is an electronic venue, uh, to uh provide uh, every tuesday uh, an up to date uh, scientific uh, and uh, epidemiologic uh, lecture or, or presentation on covid-19 uh we will probably do that until Uh, until we feel is appropriate to go back to our normal schedule. Uh, We will work with the speakers, of course, to make sure we respect their time and their preparation. Uh, But these are not normal times, and I think this venue is is the proper one to be able to provide such information for for all of you. So so work with us. Uh, Thank you. Uh, uh, If you have questions, uh, of course, let us know and and we'll have to figure out a more nimble way to get questions from you uh, electronically, since uh, the the audience here is more limited, uh, uh, primarily of uh, the group from uh, pediatric gastroenterology. I see the, uh, they, your colleagues, the fellows, and and so let me let me stop there and introduce uh, Dr. Corey Baker. I don't think he ever imagined that his his first grand rounds at Connecticut Children's would be to a mostly empty auditorium. Um, that is a surreal experience, I have to say, um, but it it probably makes it easier on you because it, you're just seeing your colleagues here. Uh, however, the uh, I, I can assure you that there will be several people. Uh, on average, we get about 200, 250 people who log in online, and as we look back, and people, you know, you, you can actually take this home with you at some point and look back and uh, and realize that this was uh, a surreal time in the middle of March, uh, where you gave your first grand rounds uh, by 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 the uh, internet primarily. Uh, Corey uh, has been nothing less than fabulous uh, since his arrival. Uh, we we uh, recruited him uh, avidly from. Uh, from that little hospital up north uh, mass general uh where, where he uh, where he trained and uh he he uh, is uh, uh he's a I wouldn't say a connecticut native but he uh, trained in connecticut uh, he was a bachelor of arts in neuroscience and behavior at Western university here in middletown connecticut uh, then went up to boston to do his uh, medical school at tufts university uh, and then uh, f- went a little bit further south to the uh, uh, saint chris in philadelphia for his pediatric residency, and then came back up north uh, to Mass General uh, to do his fellowship in pediatric gastroenterology, hepatology, and nutrition, uh, where he excelled uh, as a fellow. and And now, uh, presently, we we uh, we're very happy to say that he has uh, brought great expertise to our area. This is an area that we that we needed needed some uh, some help, and he's moved very quickly. And he's the director of the, for the Center for uh, Neurogastroenterology and Motility Disorders, uh, an area that is very, very important to pediatricians, uh, very important to the general community, and one that uh, is rapidly evolving. Uh, and uh, I've, we've asked uh, Corey to talk to us today about uh, pediatric dysphagia uh, beyond the basics. Uh, and so um, I will say that uh, if, if electronically you can, you know, you can do a round of applause, although we have some people here. Uh, and welcome uh, uh, Dr. Baker. So Corey, the, the podium is yours.
1: Thank you, Dr. Salazar for that kind introduction. So um, thank you, good morning. Thank you for the few members that are here uh, uh, with me physically, I appreciate it. Um, And thank you for everyone who's joining us virtually as well. I also want to say thank you very much for the hard work for the people behind the scenes who put this together. Um, I know this is unprecedented time, so thank you. Um, so, uh, as was discussed, my name is Dr. Cory Baker. Um, I'm part of the team of the Center for Neurogastroenterology and Motility Disorders, and one of the newer, I guess you could say, uh, gastroenterology attendings here at Connecticut Children. So, um, I have the pleasure of talking about pediatric dysphagia uh, this morning. I have no financial disclosures. <clears throat> so, uh my objectives for this morning are at the end of this i hope you will be able to identify major diagnoses of pediatric dysphagia uh, recall the different diagnostic modalities for dysphagia and their appropriate use and analyze diagnostic patterns of esophageal motor disorders on esophageal manometry because i'm a motility doctor and of course we're going to talk about esophageal manometry um, i hope that you'll learn um, a lot more other than these three objectives though so I want to start off with uh, the definition of dysphagia. So uh, dysphagia is defined as any disruption to the swallow sequence that results in compromise to the safety, efficiency, or adequacy of nutritional intake. And as you can see, it's a pretty vague definition. Um, the point for me starting off with this is that there as you as we will discuss, there are numerous muscles and numerous nerves that are innervated in those muscles. And it's a very complex mechanism uh, for the act of swallowing. And so therefore there's a lot of potential for compromise. Um, and so um, it's a very, very heterogeneous um, type of diagnosis in that. Really, it's extremely important for the clinician to get a good history um, and a really thorough past history as well of each patient, because that will really help kind of focus what your next uh, intervention from a diagnostic standpoint and also management standpoint might be. And so why is this important? So let's talk about epidemiology. Um, So the CDC uh, uh, sent a national health interview in 2012 Um, It was two families and over a 12 month period they uh, reported that almost 1% of all children from 3 to 17 years old in the United States reported to have some sort of swallowing problem. Um, We also know that some certain types of swallowing issues can be more prevalent in certain uh, patient populations. A few studies have shown that uh, kids with cerebral palsy have more uh, issues with oropharyngeal dysphagia than normal kids or kids without cerebral palsy, um, as well as greater severity of cognitive impairment can also um, have uh, larger rates of, of dysphagia as well. We also know that uh, kids with craniofacial disorders also have uh, higher prevalence rates of oral dysphagia, which is, an, um, which is pretty straightforward, but we'll talk about kind of other possibilities that could contribute to uh, dysphagia. So dysphagia or the swallowing mechanism, I should say, is really broken down into four phases. So the first phase is oral preparatory phase, which means just basically the chewing or mastication of food, um, really to prepare it to go down into the esophagus. The next is the oral transit phase. Um, This is really when the bolus of food or liquid is transported to the back of the throat. The pharyngeal phase is classically what we think of as the actual swallow, uh, where the transportation of the bolus from the pharynx really through the upper esophageal sphincter on the top of the esophagus. And then the esophageal phase, which is again the transportation of the bolus really through the tube, through the upper esophageal sphincter, down the esophagus or the esophageal body, past the lower esophageal sphincter, and into the stomach. And so, as I mentioned, there's three main parts um, of the esophagus. Thus, uh, The first part is the upper esophageal sphincter, which my colleagues will get annoyed with me as I explain it to patients' families. I always talk about sphincters as being doors and how they need to be opened, um, but really that's what they are. The upper esophageal sphincter really is at the top of the esophagus and allows food to pass from the pharynx into the esophagus. The esophageal body um, is where the food travels through, and the lower esophageal sphincter is the doorway that allows food to go into the stomach. I highlighted the esophageal phase because I will be mainly focusing on this during this talk. So um, as I had previously mentioned, the clinical history is extremely, extremely important because again, there are so many different diagnoses and different symptoms that could be associated with dysphagia that it's really important to get a thorough history. So to just kind of highlight that fact, um, these are some symptoms that you might think of that could be associated with dysphagia. Um, When I think of certain symptoms, it kind of makes me think of certain possibilities. So just to point out a few in the interest of time. When I think of back arching, I usually think of possibly uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease, infants after they eat um, that could be causing some pain. Uh, whereas, with if anything that has breathing difficulties or coughing and choking during swallowing, I think there might be a discoordination in the oropharynge- in some oropharyngeal dysphagia. When I think of uh, difficulty managing secretions, I think about possibly um, food impaction from underlying eosinophilic esophagitis or po- possibly a foreign body ingestion um, that a kid may have a caustic ingestion or any of those things that could cause this. And um, those, if those words are not familiar with you, they hopefully will be by the end of the presentation. So this is also just some underlying associated diagnoses just to highlight the fact that there are a lot that can be considered kind of um, uh, contributing or possible underlying cause of dysphagia. I won't go through everything, but just to appreciate kind of, again, the heterogeneity. So let's focus a little bit more on each phase. the oral preparatory phase, as I had mentioned, is food in the oral cavity. Um, it's chewed and formed into a bolus. Um, this picture is a sagittal view of the head. Um, you could see, obviously, the lips here, the teeth here, and the tongue. The blue is supposed to be the food bolus, and so when you chew up your food, it, it gets ready to kind of get thrown back into your soft into your pharynx, um, and it stays in the oral cavity. When we are first born, this is actually involuntary, um, but as we get older, it becomes obviously more voluntary. Um, and really you need appropriate muscle coordination um, and sensory kind of triggers in order to have appropriate uh, mastication or, or drinking. The next phase is the oral transit phase. Uh, the bolus is uh, propelled from the front um, of the mouth to the back of the tongue, and it starts or to initiate uh, the swallowing reflex. Um, Again, very complex. There's a lot of different movements um, and muscle contractions to kind of uh, coordinate there. Um, Here, again, is just a picture of the bolus going back into the throat. The triggering of the swallowing reflex is generally involuntary, um, but obviously you can control it. As some of you may know, if you're trying to really gulp down a big glass of water, you can try to swallow. And then the pharyngeal phase is, um, is really an involuntary activity. To initiate and control it as it goes down into the upper esophageal um, upper esophageal sphincter, and so this is very very complex. Um, as you can see here by the diagram, the bolus starts from the top and really is pushed down through um, the cricopharyngeus muscle. is the main muscle that contributes to the upper esophageal sphincter. And so uh, to initiate this, usually there's a closure of the nasal pharyngeal port, uh, which is up here. Um, You'll have uh, the pharyngeal uh, closure of all the sphincter muscles will kind of push the bolus down, Um, different muscles, the superior middle and inferior pharyngeal constrictors will kind of push the bolus down. There's also a closure of the vocal vocal cords so it doesn't go down the airway. And there's a high laryngeal excursion, which is basically this part um, pushes up to kind of open up uh, the lumen of the esophagus so it can go down a little bit easier. And then there's all, obviously um, the relaxation of the upper esophageal sphincter to help the bolus pass through. All of this is really coordinated by uh, the vagus and glossopharyngeal um, cranial nerves uh, from a motor and sensory input standpoint. So um, the those three phases, if we think about, um, uh, I really kind of group them into three main. Uh, Causes um, that I think about when I uh, see patients that might have this possibility. Granted, there, as you saw from before, there's a lot of different possibly contributing factors or diagnoses, but. I do think uh, motor dysfunction, discoordination, coordination is a can be a big issue. Um, in that, as you saw, there's a lot of muscles and nerves that are involved, and there's a lot of different kind of coordination. So, um, when there's underlying um, neurological issues, muscular itch issues, cognitive de- cognitive delays, or de- developmental delays, those can also um, show in kind of this discoordination, um, and again, cause oral and pharyngeal dysphagia. Um, when you have discoordination, Sometimes you can have some food residual in the back of your throat and therefore those kids are really susceptible to penetration and aspiration or uh, food boluses or liquids going into the airway and causing respiratory symptoms. Another group I think about is sensory and behavioral environmental. Um, so sensory being sometimes kids have really uh, big issues with different types of textures of food. Um, uh, behavioral, there's sometimes you'll see kids with food aversion where um, a traumatic experience happens based off of uh, really where they are and from, from an age standpoint, but something kind of traumatic happens and they just will refu- refuse that food for um, due to that experience. Or environmental where there's it's the wrong bottle or the child only prefers breast or doesn't like certain solid foods or different nipples and different flows, and so um, those can all contribute to the act of not having um, sufficient uh, swallowing for nutritional intake. And then lastly, anatomical variances, so uh, craniofacial um, uh, disorders, uh, also airway uh, changes in the anatomy like laryngeal clefts can also um, contribute to pharyngeal dysphagia. And so I also think about these kids that usually their symptoms will intensify around feeds. Granted, that's not every kid. Some kids will have kind of recurrent respiratory infections, Um, but a lot of times you'll see these kids with a lot of coughing and gagging and choking during feeds um, and having issues kind of keeping feeds down. Um, also, the diagnoses change as patients grow and develop, um, meaning that in oral pharyngeal dysphagia, it's very different and the causes are different from an infant compared to someone who hasn't had any issues with oral pharyngeal dysphagia and then as an adolescent, all of a sudden starts having issues. You think of more acute things um, obviously for those kids. So, so it really depends on each patient And the other aspect of this that can make it difficult is that there's multiple contributing factors. The example, again, being the food aversion. Sometimes kids will have issues with gastroesophageal reflux disease, cause pain, and then they'll uh, refuse to eat. And so um, really it takes a multidisciplinary approach to treat these kids. And so um, some of the diagnostic modalities that we have to look at oral pharyngeal dysphagia, one is a fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of the swallow or fees. Um, This is a scope that goes through the nose, down into the back of the throat, looking at the pharynx. Um, Really, it's great for visualization of the pharynx, but really doesn't look at oral or esophageal phases of the swallow. Here is a picture of what the fees may look like. And so um, the greenish, the bluish greenish color is just the liquid that, that they have given the child. So basically the scope goes in the back, in the nose, in the back of the throat and they watch the child swallow. Um, here you can see there's some residual, um, uh, residual liquid after this, this particular patient swallowed. It's great for evaluating the structure and function of the upper airway, secretion management, um, pharyngeal swallowing function, and then really the effectiveness of therapeutic intervention. So um, changes in consistencies, you can uh, repeat this study to see how, how the patient's doing. Um, and again, has been shown to be equally s- as sensitive in these uh, particular aspects of the swallow um, compared to the next diagnostic modality, which we'll talk about, which is the video fluoros- fluoroscopic swallow study. So this is also referred to as a modified barium swallow study. Um, speech uh, language pathologists present different food and different consistencies to kids. Um, and that's mixed with liquid barium and uh, through imaging we're able to follow that. Um, so it is, um, it's really great at giving a really comprehensive view of what might be going on with the oral and pharyngeal phases but isn't terribly good for um, esophageal motor function. I do have a a video here. See if it works here. I don't think it did. That's okay. It was basically just showing you what a normal swallow looks like and kind of what that looks like um, uh, from our providers. So, for the treatment for oral pharyngeal dysphagia, um, again, a multidisciplinary approach is really important. Um, you know, I think probably the most important thing when you're thinking about oral pharyngeal dysphagia is a real time clinical evaluation um, and possible therapeutic intervention by our feeding team. Shout out to our Connecticut Children's Feeding Team, which is wonderful. Um, it includes speech language pathologists, occupational therapists, nutritionists, and uh, psychologists. Um, they really work with patients to kind of get real time data um, and figure out. Uh, what might be the issue there's a lot of different things they can do from a behavioral standpoint and also from um, a therapy standpoint uh, with different swallowing exercises based on the kids age Um, so that's really important can give you a ton of information and also can be um, extremely therapeutically uh, valuable We often will think about treating for GERD from a gastroenterology standpoint, um, depending on um, uh, the kid's age, but usually in younger kids we'll be treating for for GERD if there's uh, a good clinical history, um, like I mentioned, the food aversion um, type of scenario. And then thickening of liquids as well has also been, um, while this has been debated in the past, um, there has been um, some research in our newer guidelines in 2018 from NASP again, which is our uh, society in North America, um, our Pediatric Gastroenterology Society in North America, um, has really recommended that thickening of feeds can be helpful uh, for for uh, oropharyngeal dysphagia. So, um, The other modality that is starting to evolve for particular kids for oral pharyngeal dysphagia um, is esophageal manometry, um, specifically looking at the upper esophageal sphincter. And so quickly, esophageal manometry really evaluates pressure, and I think of it more as a functional um, study. The catheter is placed through the nose, um, uh, usually when the kid's awake, um, just like a nasogastric tube, sometimes we'll use sedation to place it and the child wakes up to do our study which really involves uh, 10 swallows to analyze. This is a pressure reading of the upper esophageal sphincter. And so um, as you may see, it's beautiful. It's got a lot of different colors um, that make it fancy, I guess you could say. Um, But really, the pressures that are purple and red are higher in pressure. Um, And when you get blue pressures, that's really relaxation or low pressures. This axis here from left to right is is time. And so if we follow along, you can see that this is the upper esophageal sphincter here in the green. As we initiate a swallow, this is all the pharyngeal muscles pushing down that bolus. and We have a relaxation of the upper esophageal sphincter, which is represented in blue. And then that upper esophageal sphincter closes um, to prevent it from retrograde, going back up into the pharynx. And so this is a nice way to look at, again, function and get actual quantitative uh, data um, of what that UES is doing. The issue with this is obviously that it's kind of new um, to specifically look at the upper esophageal sphincter. There are um, established um, classifications that we have adapted in the pediatric worlds from the adults called the Chicago classification. That is really more for the esophageal body and the lower esophageal sphincter. Um, but really it's use in the upper esophageal sphincter for kids is just really not defined and really unknown. Um, the reason why this can be really helpful is for a particular diagnosis called cricopharyngeal achalasia. So this would, if this was a video swallow study, which I uh, unfortunately was unable to show you through the video, um, but basically this is barium going through um, uh, the pharynx here, and then you come across and then you look at this big thing. So what the heck is that, right? And so that's not supposed to be there for people who have not seen uh, video swallow studies. And so. That is considered a cricopharyngeal bar, which is a um, really high pressure uh, upper esophageal sphincter. In adults, they see it in chronic um, uh, GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease and don't make much about it. I can tell you in kids, we classically don't see that because they don't have the length of chronicity to, to cause that issue. Uh, we usually see it in really infants that um, can be born with it or um, around one years old, two years old and um, in, in uh, early childhood as well. So um, the debate There's really, it's really unknown for the ideology, but there's possibility that kind of stomach acid can contribute. Um, Regardless though, um, it's a rare disorder. um, Again, characterized by the upper esophageal sphincter really just not relaxing. And as I had mentioned, currently there's no standards um, for different types of pressure evaluation for upper esophageal sphincters, either through manometry or any other study. So there's not a specific cutoff that you say, okay, this is cricopharyngeal, And a lot of that has to do because it's it's a rare disorder as well. And so, if you can remember the previous upper esophageal um, sphincter esophageal manometry, you may you may remember that there was a lot more blue kind of in this area, um, meaning that the upper esophageal sphincter was relaxing nicely. This study, um, obviously, you can see that as we go along the upper upper esophageal sphincter here, it's green and yellow and red, and then there's really no blue, it actually gets tighter. Um, So that suggests that the upper esophageal sphincter isn't relaxing and can be diagnostic for cricopharyngeal achalasia. Um, The caveat here is in older children um, and and in younger children as well, anxiety and stress because this is also striated muscle um, and voluntary input as well from the neural innervation. So stress and anxiety can cause that UES to be um, excessively um, hypertensive as well. So you have to kind of know the clinical situation of when this was done as well. So the treatment, um, uh, there's a few that a few studies that have looked at different treatments for cricopharyngeal achalasia. The first being Botox injections into the upper esophageal sphincter. Um, they're mostly retrospective views. Um, there's varying outcomes and there's no, uh, specifically it's usually just the recurrence of whatever the symptom was prior to. Um, most often, it's transient in nature, nature as far as it's, um, how uh, the resolution of symptoms, usually the average is about three months or so that you'll get an improvement in symptoms. Obviously, that can be different for each on an individual basis, um, but, it is, but it is safe. The other possibility is endoscopic dilation and pneumatic dilation, which is with a balloon and endoscopy. Um, this paper in 2016 looked at 32 patients um, from a wide uh, uh, range of, uh, of age here, 15 days to seven years old. They had pre and post uh, video swallow studies to see what they were doing, and um, they did notice that about 68% had total resolution of symptoms, really after a total of six dilations, with um, the average being about two or three. Um, there were, uh, unfortunately, three patients that were resistant to these interventions and two that actually had perforations. So so while two out of 32 isn't a large number, it's obviously something we would like to not do for kids, so that's something we'd definitely have to think about. Um, lastly was a paper I was a part of um, in 2000, that just came out earlier this year, which looked at myotomy of the cricopharyngeus, uh, which is basically an incision to help release uh, that hypertensive hypertensity of the upper esophageal sphincter. We had seven patients Um, and we did uh, mostly a pre and post swallow study, also questionnaires, and for about half of those, we also had pre and post um, esophageal manometry studies. And so this was a nice study showing that about 86% after uh, just one myotomy um, had improvement of symptoms on the swallow study, on the questionnaire, and then also importantly, from um, a uh, esophageal manometry standpoint, also had significant decrease um, in the resting pressure of the upper esophageal sphincter and the residual pressure which is really how much does that UES relax. Um, again, I just wanna emphasize, none of these are standardized treatments. and um, A lot of times it's a case by case basis and where you are in the ho- which hospital and who, what the surgeon is really comfortable with. So um, uh, again, I think it's also not standardized because it's a rare disorder, but it does give us possibilities for um, further looking into other um, uh, feeding disorders and uh, the, understanding and characterizing the role of the upper esophageal sphincter on a much larger magnitude. So the last thing I'll say about oral pharyngeal um, dysphagia is there can be sensation issues as well, and so it's not a motor issue. Um, there's not inflammation or an obstruction or discoordination, It's more of a hypersensitivity from the nerves. And so one is a swallow refusal or oral aversion, which I've mentioned a few times, can be in any age, um, can be in infant that had GERD and then um, refuse certain um, liquids. It can be um, in school-age children who swallowed a particular thing, then. Um, had a traumatic event, whether it be choking or pain or a breathing issue, um, and then with time, just kind of refuse that particular food or other foods like it. Um, for the uh, usually, it, uh, if there's a workup done, it's usually normal. Um, in an infant, most often we just try to. It's really important, obviously, for growth and development. So we're trying anything we can to get the appropriate nutrition in them. Um, but most often they'll grow out of it if there's truly no underlying pathology. Um, in children, sometimes cognitive behavioral therapy can be really helpful to really focus in the, on that particular event um, to kind of relieve, in this, relieve the stress and anxiety of that event as well. And then the last thing is a globus pharyngeus or globus sensation, which we do see in the, our older kids. Um, it's characterized as a persistent or intermittent non painful sensation of a foreign body or lump in the, in the pharynx. The ide- ideology is really unclear um, and thought to be complex. I can tell you just from personal experience, a lot of um, the majority of kids that I see with this have some underlying issue with stress and anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, that's obviously not necessarily uh, uh, applicable to all patients. Um, during this workup, usually the workup will include kind of treating for gastroesophageal reflux disease, possibly an endoscopy, possibly an upper GI study, which we'll talk about uh, in, in, the, in a few slides. Um, but um, And some kids can respond to a PPI. Uh, I would say most of the kids, I um, just from clinical experience uh, that I have treated do not. And so um, other possibilities for treatments, again, are cognitive behavioral therapy to help overcome um, that particular stress and anxiety of having that sense or um, antidepressants, specifically amitriptyline uh, or Elevil, which is is a tricyclic antidepressant, or uh, gabapentin and other neuromodulators that can help kind of turn those nerves down. So uh, the rest of my talk, I'm gonna really focus on the esophageal phase of things. Um, And so the esophageal phase, as I had mentioned, is when obviously the bolus goes through both sphincters or doorways traveling through the esophageal body and into the stomach. Um, there really is, uh, so the upper esophageal sphincter needs to relax. There needs to be peristalsis, so really the pushing of the food bolus proximally to the distal end of the esophageal body and then it has to go relax through the lower esophageal sphincter to get into the stomach. Um, And so this is all mediated by um, the autonomic nervous system but also the enteric nervous system as well. And so just quickly to go over esophageal physiology. So uh, the esophageal, the esophagus itself is a muscular body made of longitudinal and circular muscles. The upper one third is striated, the lower two thirds is smooth muscle. You can have, uh, starts from the lower cricoid to the stomach anatomically, uh, and then spans the vertebral bodies of C6 to T11, uh, the two sphincters I've already mentioned. The lower esophageal sphincter is actually a part of a complex, the gastroesophageal uh, junction has actually multiple contributors. Um, uh, Specifically the diaphragm plays a huge role in helping create a barrier uh, for uh, stomach acid um, from splashing up into the esophagus. And so uh, the lower esophageal sphincter is important but also part of the equation, not the, the only part. From an innervation standpoint, I mentioned there's autonomic innervation in the enteric nervous system. Um, Peristalsis is most often the pushing of the food from proximal to distal Um, uh, distal in the esophagus is really mandated by the enteric nervous system. the enteric nervous system, as you may remember, uh, is made up of really the myenteric plexus, which is in between the longitudinal circular muscle layers, as well as the submucosal plexus or submucosal uh, ganglia, um, uh, which is uh, rightfully named uh, because it's in the submucosa. Um, those really talk uh, with uh, the, um, the the rest of the brain and the spinal cord and can be kind of um, uh, changed, uh, heightened, or decreased based off of um, certain inputs. And so it's it's very complex um, and everything's really related. And so um, these, uh, some of those things are sympathetic innervation can cause inhibition, inhibition of secretion of esophageal glands um, while parasympathetic can kind of help increase that gland secretion and also increase peristalsis if needed. Um, uh, really the vagus and the recurrent laryngeal nerves are, are major players in um, innervating the esophagus. So um, so let's talk about the causes of esophageal dysphagia. So I think about really four main things when I think about esophageal phase um, uh, dysphagia. The first being obstruction or anatomical variance, second being inflammation, third being motor dysfunction, um, and the last being sensation. And so anatomical or an obstruction issue, um, so obviously you can have a complete or, or a partial blockage of the esophagus. Usually we don't see complete as often if there's, um, and we'll talk about different uh, scenarios, but um, you know, uh, blockage can obviously create um, some pain or difficulty um, uh, swallowing foods and passing obviously into the esophagus. There's additional symptoms um, here. Uh, most often I think of vomiting when I think of obstructions, but uh, there's all obviously other symptoms symptoms that can be associated with it, which are listed here. Um, I also think in partial obstruction too, it's usually food, uh, solid food that gets stuck. Usually liquids can bypass, and that will be important. And that. So that's something you have to kind of ask your patients or um, when they're saying that food's getting stuck or they're vomiting with food. Um, that's important um, as, we get, as we'll talk about motor dysfunction. And so there's a lot of different causes, um, all, a lot of different causes based off of uh, the age of the patient. Um, obviously, uh, usually tracheoesophageal fistulas, kids are born with uh, in the setting of, and with esophageal atresia, you, you know, you have your classic, not able to keep anything down, can't pass the ng tube. Um, other things uh, that you may not think about, but um, are ex- extra esophageal compression. So you could have, um, you know, uh, uh, cardiac uh, abnormalities that kids are born with, um, like an aberrant uh, coronary artery. You could have uh, masses that are pushing in. We don't thankfully don't see that as frequently in kids, but it can happen. Um, foreign body. Uh, obviously, for us as gastroenterologists, we think about that. Um, if a kid has recently swallowed something, or has swallowed something in the past, specifically a button battery or a caustic ingestion, which can cause strictures um, in the f- in the future. And so, it's important to talk about present and, and past, as well as uh, inflammation. So eosinophilic esophagitis, which we'll talk about, is a major player in causing um, stricture uh, uh, issues or causing strictures uh, down the road. Um, a Schatzky ring, we don't see as often in kids, but that's, from, that's usually seen in adults. That's a fibrous um, ring, kind of in the distal portion of the esophagus um, caused by longstanding GERD. Um, and then history of uh, Nissen fund duplication as well, obviously will create more pressure at the LES and create um, a sensation of dysphagia. Um, esophageal perforation obviously usually isn't an obstruction, but just from an anatomical standpoint, if you have um, a perforation or a cut through the mucosa um, or through the entire uh, the wall of the esophagus, that obviously can create um, pain and dysphagia as well. And so, um, I think the drive, the really main point for this. Particular those, these particular diagnoses um, for esophageal dysphagia is what you should do about it as far as kind of how do you look into it. And really the, the, the best test for, for anatomical characterization is really an upper GI study um, or esophagram, parent and swallow study, upper GI series, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's basically contrast that they follow um, through um, uh, through the esophagus to really outline um, uh, the anatomy of the esophagus and there's really minimal radiation exposure this is what it will look like um, you can see a nice contour of the esophagus and it kind of narrows here where thankfully these arrows are as well as kind of a, a narrowing here in this patient and so um, suggesting that there's some strictures from um, whatever the cost might be um, uh, this paper in 2016 looked at strictures um, and identified that this is actually a better study than an upper endoscopy or an EGD Um, for identifying strictures, I will say sometimes uh, we'll do both um, just to make sure we're not missing anything. Um, The the other thing I would mention too is that sometimes you need water-soluble contrast if you're worried about any of the contrast for any reason going into the lungs. It can be an irritant, um, not necessarily that um, it will cause issues, um, but just on the safe side some people might uh, like to go to a water-soluble-based contrast. so for inflammation, we're just going to spend a little bit more time on inflammation and motor dysfunction because I feel like, um, uh, from an inflammation standpoint, we see that quite a bit, um, and so. Additional symptoms that you may see with dysphagia if you're thinking about or if you're seeing uh, inflammation in the esophagus or esophagitis, really chest pain, heartburn, belching, uh, systemic symptoms if you have an infection, um, as well as uh, food getting stuck, and again, I think about um, inflammation and obstruction uh, when there's really solid foods getting stuck um, and liquids are, are being able to pass. Obviously, that's not every case, but in general, um, I think about that. Um, Okay, uh, uh, <laughs> the clinical history is super important. Again, the onset of symptoms, past medical history, getting to know what's going on. Um, probably the biggest uh, diagnosis we see is gastroesophageal reflux disease to nobody's surprise, but it's eosinophilic esophagitis is another um, diagnosis that's uh, unfortunately um, becoming more prevalent. Um, Crohn's disease, which is autoimmune um, disease in the GI tract, you could potentially see in the esophagus. Uh, That's usually a little bit rarer of where uh, we see Crohn's disease, but uh, infection could be a possibility as well. Uh, Herpes um, can cause esophagitis in uh, kids who are not immunocompromised. Uh, Canada and cytomegalovirus, usually in kids that are, are immunocompromised, but we can see esophagitis. Um, And then foreign bodies, I think of esophagitis as well, so um, button batteries, um, caustic ingestions, all can cause inflammation both acutely and um, uh, from a stricture standpoint, um, can cause anatomical issues um, in uh, in the future. And so our test uh, diagnostic modality uh, preference is the upper endoscopy, uh, which is pictured here on the right. Um, so the patient really evaluates the esophageal mucosa, as most of you know, uh, it's under sedation. It's usually pretty quick, um, and we get a really good uh, visualization of the tissue, but also through biopsies are able to look from a histological standpoint, uh, which is um, even more important. Um, The complication rate as we have evolved and getting better um, in the United States at performing these endoscopies has really um, improved and and, and, uh, the complication rates are extremely low. Um, uh, Obviously, therapeutic procedures like ERCPs or pneumatic dilations have a little bit of a higher risk, um, but our complication rates are just as equal to adult complication rates for these therapeutic dilations. Um, And uh, also with foreign body extractions, the complications rate because of the endoscopy are pretty low as well. This is what a a normal esophagus would look like if you were doing an upper endoscopy. Um, You can appreciate that the mucosa is really um, kind of a tannish pinkish hue. Um, You can see all these blood vessels that are nicely outlined. I would mention too, there's no white little plaques or there's no um, big circles that look like, make it look like the trachea or there's no lines going down into the esophagus, um, which will be important in a few slides. But this is what a normal um, esophagus looks like on the upper endoscopy. So let's talk about GERD, so um, so we think of GERD um, really in two different ways. There's gastroesophageal reflux or GER, I guess you could say, um, which is really a natural uh, physiologic process of, again, the contents passing from the stomach into the esophagus can be in any children, infants, children, adults, usually a few times a day. We th- really GERD is when that passive reflux really causes problems. So troublesome symptoms or complications, which I think about, esophagitis, respiratory issues. And uh, Port Wakey. An infant. In infants, um, reflux happens all the time, and so there's a lot of good studies that show up to two thirds, even higher than that, maybe even 80% of kids will have naturally reflux. Really start, really maximized at three months of age, and that kind of um, slowly um, um, declines as far as how many people, how many kids are having uh, reflux. Really by age seven and nine months, um, it's thought to be the prematurity of the uh, uh, lower esophageal sphincter. Um, But signs of gastroesophageal reflux disease uh, may include refusal to eat, recurrent vomiting, and pain and excessive fussiness. In older children, it may include more kind of your classic symptoms, at least in adults, as far as heartburn, abdominal pain, chest pain, and belching. And so um, for treatment, and so these are the guidelines that came out in 2018 from our society um, for uh, guidelines for GERD. First-line therapy for gastroesophageal reflux uh, is actually, um, if there, if it's um, is, if there's persistent issues, maybe not the troublesome issues that you've mentioned, but um, uh, one, the first-line therapy, if the kid's doing okay, you wouldn't change anything, but you could think of kind of changing the formula um, or restricting or restricting uh, mom's diet uh, to almost treat them like a milk protein allergy. Uh, usually, dairy and soy are the most common uh, uh, first-line restrictors. Um, or switching to a hydrolyzed formula. Um, In older children, lifestyle modifications are are suggested as far as losing weight if you're overweight or uh, restricting certain types from the food. Um, In cases of GERD, uh, for infants, avoid overeating, thicken feeds, Um, then again, trialing different hydrolyzed formulas, um, and then considering um, antacid therapy. So really, um, to try the formula first before the antacid therapy. Uh, As we know, um, in this room, that doesn't always um, uh, and that's uh, that's okay, but uh, the guidelines really suggest to do um, uh, older time modifications. Um, if that doesn't work, considering a forty eight week trial of an or uh, PPI. So um, diagnostic modality again, uh, so GERD, um, you can uh, diagnose on upper endoscopy. Um, sometimes it can look like EOE or eosinophilic esophagitis, which we'll talk about next on visual inspection, but that's where the biopsies can really help you. Um, this is, a, this is a, a, an upper endoscopy that is suggestive of GERD. You can notice that it's a little bit more pink. You don't really, you see some vessels, but not as nicely as you saw before. There's some erosions here um, and uh, the biopsies would show inflammation. Another modality that we have here at Connecticut Children's is pH and pH impedance probes. Um, These probes are basically uh, most often placed through the nose um, and go down into the esophagus just right above the LES at a particular point. It really measures the amount of reflux um, uh, that is coming into the esophagus. Based off of which type of probe you choose, you can get different types of information. Um, both um, from anatomically, you can have proximal probes, meaning more closer to the pharynx, or distal probes, more closer to the LES. Um, pH probes really just measure acid um, reflux, where pH impedance, measures acidic, weakly acidic and non-acidic uh, reflux events. Um, they're great, this test is really great for three main things, which is characterizing the amount and types of reflux, which I just mentioned, and also correlating reported symptoms. So um, we will, we you know, if you are worried about a cough or um, other type of upper, um, uh, or pharyngeal type of symptoms, sometimes this is a good way to see if those symptoms are truly due to uh, reflux. Um, also, this can be helpful for determining the efficacy of treatment, meaning that if you have a kid on antacid therapy but still having GERD-like symptoms, you can see if there's, if there's breakthrough GERD that is pathological, and maybe you have to change your therapy, um, along with other treatment modalities as well. This is what a pH probe uh, would look like. Um, so um, basically this line is uh, is set at pH of four, anything below that will turn red, uh, which is uh, large acidic reflux episodes. Um, the, the uh, gray diamonds are different symptoms that the patient actually uh, will push so we can understand when they're having them symptoms and correlate um, based off of specific criteria to these reflux episodes. Here you can see there's, um, there's large amounts of red, which um, after looking statistically, this patient had a um, uh, pretty significant gastroesophageal reflux disease. <clears throat> So for the treatment for refractory GERD, um, we start thinking about uh, surgical. Um, I'm seeing I might be running out of time, so I'm gonna have to go a little bit quicker here. Um, but uh, the gold standard is a Nissen fund application uh, where they wrap around the fundus of the stomach to create more of a barrier. Um, there's limited data in children, but what's out there um, is pretty promising. Um, there's a five-year survival uh, post fund application. Um, from here, about 59% to uh, up to 100% um, for survival, the uh, kids that didn't do as well had a, Uh, a lot of neurological compromise. Um, It's been shown to reduce reflux symptoms and total acid exposure as well and the need for redo fund fund application in this study was 12 percent. The guidelines recommend to consider the Nissen fund application for a few uh, recommendations here which again I won't read for the interest of time. the more recent uh, newer type of uh, surgical option is called the LYNX reflux management system. This is an implantable ring of magnetic beads that is placed around the esophagus um, at the gastroesophageal uh, uh, func- uh, junction. Excuse me. You can see it here pretty much holding that LES um, closed but also opening when needed to for a food bolus to let it pass. Um, This uh, hasn't been done as frequently in kids. The data is really limited to adults, not surprisingly, um, but the data is is pretty good from an adult standpoint um, um, and is just as effective. It seems to be just as effective as Nissen's. And so um, the most common side effect is actually dysphagia. Um, and there's rare, obviously, rare complications of this eroding through the uh, esophagus. Um, uh, but uh, it seems to be promising and maybe something um, that might be brought uh, to children in the near future. Um, For other inflammation is uh, eosinophilic esophagitis, which is marked infiltration of eosinophils. Um, This is what the scope may look like, so you can see kind of these linear furrows, these lines going down, these white plaques, and then these circular type of rings, um, all classic for EOE. Um, It can be be seen in atopic children's, but it's really T-cell mediated, Um, and the prevalence prevalence is increasing. Um, Also in adults, and um, we start thinking about this based off of uh, certain symptoms based off of age, so in younger kids, usually growth failure and emesis um, is, is more um, persistent for this age group, whereas in older kids, um, usually dysphagia and food impaction um, in adolescence is the most common presentation. Treatment wise, so first the diagnosis is histological and that's why I mentioned biopsies, even though if GERD looks like eosinophilic esophagitis, um, the biopsies can help kind of um, tell you whether or not it is. There's some caveats to it, which I won't get into, but um, really the the gold standard is eosinophils, which are greater than 15 uh, per high powered field or um, they're microscopic field. Some patients uh, do respond to an antacid therapy. This paper said up to fifty-four percent. I think other papers have said thirty to forty. Um, and then, really, we think about food therapy, so elimination therapy. There's been uh, four food eliminations, six food eliminations, um, up to sixty percent for this paper for four food. I will say there's another paper that shows just milk alone. Taking that out is about up to sixty-eight percent of kids do well just on that. Um, and really. From a a dietary standpoint, elemental formula, amino acid-based formula, um, can be um, a definitive treatment option as well. Also, topical steroids is thought of um, for breakthrough symptoms or um, uh, for treatment as well, but can lose its effect over time. The last thing I'll say about esophageal inflammation is just caustic ingestions. Um, This is alkaline ingestion, uh, which can see inflammation, um, as well as uh, uh, infections, like I mentioned, which you can see the punched out lesions here for herpes. the next topic I'm gonna to talk about is the motor dysfunction, which we use esophageal manometry um, as really the gold standard to understand function of the esophagus. Again, it's a pressure topography map, and here's what the entire esophage- esophagus looks like for esophageal manometry. You can see, again, the same rules apply to what you previously saw. So red and pink are high pressures, blue are low pressures. You can see upper esophageal sphincter. This is what peristalsis looks like. It's kind of this stairway going down of pressure, um, uh, meaning that, from from a proximal standpoint going down to distal, um, pushing that food bolus down. There's also, uh, we also have the capability here to look at actual, uh, the food bolus, which would be in purple here, and you can see it as it pushes down and see if there's any remnants uh, through impedance. And then you can also see the lower esophageal sphincter relaxing nicely to allow the food into the stomach. So I mentioned the Chicago classification is really the gold standard to to help diagnose these particular um, uh, diagnoses, Um, but it has not been standardized in children. We, like most things uh, in GI, we are adapting, or at least from a motility standpoint, adapting to what the adult folks are doing. There has been some case reviews and retrospective studies that have suggested that it's okay to apply the Chicago classification to children, so we do do that. Um, I think about motor dysfunction in kids when there's really no history of or no suggestion of an anatomical or obstructive process, but they're unable to pass solids and liquids. So that's that's kind of a definitive or a suggestive point in the history that you can kind of get out from the beginning. Um, and those kids, I would suggest going forward with esophageal manometry um, pretty quick in their in their workup. Um, so the Chicago classification again is the big way to diagnose these things. Um, there can be issues with the Yes, not relaxing. Achalasia and EGJ outflow obstruction are the two main diagnoses for that. There can be major disorders of peristalsis, meaning that um, the. Obviously you don't see that stairway and there's issues uh, with it contracting or failed swallows, meaning you just don't see that peristalsis at all. Here are some of those diagnoses that fall under that category. And there can be minor disorders of peristalsis as well. Ineffective uh, ineffective motility is is more often seen in adults and thought to be due to gastroesophageal reflux disease where you have inflammation that is uh, basically um, hurting the enteric nervous system and therefore decreasing um, how the esophageal body can. Tracks. We do see it in kids sometimes, but it's more of an adult diagnosis, but uh, you know, some of my adult colleagues will argue 50 to 60% of the motor disorders they see is IEM. So uh, when I think about motor disorders, I think about first off, is there peristalsis? So do you see that nice kind of stairway going down? Um, if not, then there's a failed swallow and there's certain different criteria for that. Um, one of the criteria is called the distal contractile integral. It's really the strength of the contraction. Um, There's also, um, so one of those diagnoses is an absent contractility where you see normal UES relaxation and LES relaxation, but really no peristalsis whatsoever. Um, Ineffective esophageal motility is what I just mentioned, but you have normal UES, normal LES relaxation, um, but really kind of a weak peristalsis and there's definitive criteria through the DCI, which is less than 450 millimeters of mercury. and then hypercontractile or jackhammer esophagus or previously called called nutcracker syndrome. And so you can see really high pressures but appropriate sphincter relaxation. Um, so when the L, so after looking at whether or not there's peristalsis, then I think about is the LES appropriately relaxing and that measures the integrated uh, relaxation pressure, really anything above 15 millimeters of mercury is considered abnormal. Um, the two major ones is EGHA, outflow obstruction, which you have um, normal upper esophageal sphincter relaxation, normal peristalsis with normal contractile, um, but really the LES doesn't, it doesn't relax like it should. And you can see the IRP is greater than 15 here. The major disorder that we think about, um, that I worry about in kids is achalasia. And so that's basically the same, but you don't have really, you have really failed swallows or no peristalsis. There's three main types. Um, Type one is more your classic one that you think about where the UES relaxes, the LES does not, and there's really nothing. There's type two, um, which is really, you can see this, there's no real stairway here. It's just very kind of spastic, all at once the esophageal body is contracting. Um, And so those are called spasms. Again, the upper esophageal sphincter relaxes, the lower esophageal sphincter does not. And type three is just large, um, a really hypercontractile. I did the red box here, because type two is really what we see in kids most often. It's thought to be really, really just kind of progression of issues where uh, it's thought that people usually start with type two then can, pro- then can kind of progress to type one or type three. We don't really know. Type two is the, the most um, responsive to treatment though, uh, which is a good thing for us. Um, treatment is just like the upper esophageal sphincter treatment uh, where you can have Botox injections, or pneumatic balloon dilations, um, both of which have been pretty successful. Um, there is some, some uh, studies out there that suggest a Heller myot- myotomy or an incision right to the LES from the get-go can be more beneficial. I will say every hot, it depends on the surgeon's um, comfort, depends on, um, and there's data that suggests otherwise as well. Um, more often than not, there's uh, usually the, the scenario is pneumatic dilations uh, followed by myotomies, but again, it's a case-by-case series. Oop. Oh, how do I go back? How do I do this? There you go. Um, one of the things of the future is something called per- peroral endoscopic myotomy, or POEM, which is um, starting to take over for the adults. Um, this is really through, the in- through an endoscope. Um, the first phase is to make the incision in the mucosa, which you can see here. Um. The second phase is to to really tunnel down into the LES um, through the submucosa. The third phase is to basically take out the circular muscle to help decrease the contractility. And the fourth phase is just to um, clean up and basically um, uh, put uh, put clips in and. Um, uh, come out of there. And so uh, there has, this is done in children. Uh, there was a case studies in 2015, 27. 26 of those patients had 96%, uh, 96% successful POEM. Um, of those, the mean follow-up period uh, was 24 months or two years um, and they had no serious um, adverse events in kids, um, their, their uh, symptoms also had uh, significantly improved. Um, So this is a possible intervention for uh, this particular issue down the road. The issue, obviously, it's a very specialized procedure. There's only a few people in the country that can do it. And then also the feasibility um, uh, may be difficult in really younger patients. I have two slides left that I'm gonna quickly go through. Um, Esophageal hypersensitivity. So lastly, uh, we talked about motor dysfunction. The last thing I'll say is esophageal hypersensitivity. Really, we think about this when the other diagnostic modalities come up short, meaning we don't see inflammation, mechanical, or motor disorders. Um, I like to explain hypersensitivity not only in the esophagus, but in other parts of the GI tract, is really an overactivation of the sensory nerves in the, in the GI tract, as well as kind of a dysregulated relationship with the brain and the spinal cord and so or also known as functional disorders as people might know and so there is room for criteria for esophageal functional disorders Um, functional dysphagia is something they have persistent uh, the feeling of inability to pass food or liquid Um, there are there are some cases described we don't see it very commonly in kids but um, i've seen it a few times um, and the thought process being Um, sometimes they will respond to treatment that kind of turns down those nerves, which is uh, neuromodulators. Um, Other more clarified ones are Um, symptoms or functional disorders that are associated with reflux Um, and so usually these kids have a pH probe and and also an endoscopy performed. The two main ones is reflux hypersensitivity where there's a normal esophageal acid exposure but a positive symptom correlation meaning that you're having acid exposure that's really normal but for some reason you are sensitive to those to those reflux episodes and then functional heartburn where you don't have any acid reflux but you're still having symptoms and so this is what um, functional heartburn would look like, as you can appreciate, there's a ton of symptoms that are being pushed, almost that it's like blocking the the tracing, but there's really no acid exposure, which you would see red down here. And so suggesting that they're having a ton of symptoms of reflux, but there's not actual acid reflux down there. And so the treatment options for those is uh, Mahoney et al. in 2017 would suggest PPIs. Um, In adult literature, they usually go to other more uh, larger neuromodulators to say the least with amitriptyline and trazodone, but um, for us uh, periactin and gabapentin can be a good neuromodulator. And so uh, I hope that I cover the three objectives that I sought out to do. Um, there is references. I Also, just want to give a shout out to our uh, Neurogastroenterology Motility Disorder Center. Um, you can check out our website there. It's hopefully, we'll be updated frequently as we uh, bring more clinics and more um, uh, investi- investigating tools um, to our uh, center. So, thank you very much.
0: Thank you uh, very much. Uh, That was uh, uh, an amazing uh, uh, run through, uh, uh, you know, uh, upper area. Almost we we didn't get to the stomach, but I guess we'll do it (laughs) next time. So uh, it's uh, 9:05, so we we will not have uh, time for questions today. Uh, As we move forward with these presentations, we will we will have uh, an open mic for those of you uh, online. Um, So stay tuned. Uh, Next uh, next uh, this coming week, we have to make a decision whether we stay with our current schedule or, uh, or actually put in a, uh, a COVID update for you. And I'm, I'm leaning towards in that direction so that we, we have our community engaged uh, by this media. But so congratulations, great work. Uh, I can see why Dr. Himes was so excited to bring you here and uh, please send our patients, obviously the scheduling is gonna be a little bit delayed now, but uh, so uh, everyone have a, have a safe day, uh, uh, be not afraid. That's my main message to you. Uh, we're here to help and answer questions. Uh, take care, thank you. Thank you.